Today on Inside Politics, campaign crunch time. 2024 is here, and the first presidential votes are 13 days away. Donald Trump's rivals are ratcheting up their attacks on each other. Us fighting back any moment now, Donald Trump is expected to appeal two decisions that kicked him off the ballots in Colorado and Maine. The Supreme Court will likely have the final word. And less about Biden, more about Trump. Sources tell CNN that's President Biden's re-election strategy. And we're going to bring you brand new reporting from inside the campaign. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start today with breaking news on who qualified for CNN's Iowa debate next week, the last before the caucuses. The deadline to meet the polling threshold just passed, and our political director, David Chalian, joins me now. David, who made the cut? Well, Dana, as you noted, the deadline just passed. It actually, the window of qualification started way back on October 15th. And we now know that for the CNN January 10th debate, the three candidates who have qualified are former President Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. Uh, we also know that Donald Trump has not participated in any debate yet this cycle, and he doesn't intend on participating at the CNN debate on January 10th. That leaves Haley and DeSantis on the stage, and that would be, of course, the smallest debate stage that we've seen to date. Uh, that means that they were the only candidates to hit 10 percent support in three polls, combination of Iowa polls and national polls, uh, going back, like I said, to October 15th. No other candidate hit the 10% mark in any single poll of the 15 polls, Dana, that fit into the qualification window. Very interesting and very exciting. Thank you so much, David Talley, and appreciate sure. that. And Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are spending millions in ads to pummel each other right now, rather than attack the guy leading them by more than 30 points in Iowa. That's where CNN Steve Contorno is in Des Moines, following all the campaign developments. Steve. Dana, it's right. If you look at Watch TV here over the last several months, really, all you will see are ads attacking Ron DeSantis from Nikki Haley's side, some from Donald Trump's side, and ads attacking Nikki Haley. But you won't see any attacking the frontrunner in this race. And that is because these candidates are exiting 2023, having failed to establish themselves as the sole alternative to Trump. And now their mission in the final days before the January 15th caucus is to push one of each other out of this race. And if you take a look at these ads that are airing now in Iowa, where we see DeSantis and Haley Super PACs going head to head over the issue of China. DeSantis called China Florida's most important trading partner. DeSantis even allowed a Chinese military contractor to expand just miles from a U.S. naval base. Phony Ron DeSantis. Too lame to lead, too weak to win. Tricky Nikki pretends she's tough on China, but as governor, she promised to do whatever it takes to get Chinese companies set up in our backyard. We just can't trust Tricky Nikki. 
DeSantis will be in Iowa tomorrow and the days leading up to our Thursday town hall, and he will stay in Iowa all throughout the weekend. Haley, meanwhile, is in New Hampshire. Her campaign has put a lot more emphasis into that state. DeSantis really needs to have a strong showing in Iowa to prove that he remains a viable contender going forward. His campaign has put so much time, money, and energy into this state. It would be very difficult for him to move on from the state if he fin doesn't finish within striking distance of Donald Trump. However, Nikki Haley, she just wants to come out of the state looking like she has some wind at her back, and she has put a lot more effort into New Hampshire where her allies there are now trying to convince Chris Christie to get off, get out of the race and give her a real chance to surge into Donald Trump's lead there. Yeah, they sure are. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Thanks for that reporting from Iowa, Steve. Let's bring it here into the studio with our panel of fantastic political reporters, CNN's Jeff Zeleny, The Washington Post's Leanne Caldwell, and Ramesh Ponoru of the National Review. Hello, everybody. First Hello. Hello. inside politics of the new year of 2024. Here we go. Uh, Jeff Zeleny, you've been out in Iowa a lot. What do you make of the fact that, uh, just kind of as we just laid out, the two who are kind of right under Donald Trump are still mostly going after each other and not the guy who's so far ahead. Because the guy who's so far ahead has a core base of supporters and no TV ad or no new argument is going to pry most of those supporters away. But the available voters are the people who have made the decision to move on from Trump. They believe it's a good idea to have a new face of the Republican Party. And those are largely people who are either uh, still open-minded, but looking at Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. So this race for second place is actually really fascinating. Mm -hmm. It has so many layers to it. Uh, a couple things that I'm watching um, as we head out to back to Iowa uh, later this week, tomorrow, in fact, uh, Nikki Haley, she's starting off much later in terms of organization and ground game. But uh, a couple voters I was texting with over the holidays, they are still trying to decide between Haley or DeSantis. That's what these commercials are designed to do, mentioning China, mentioning this or, the, um, or that. So that's why Trump is sort of getting a free pass, if you will. So it's sort of been this just this snowball effect of Trump is in a race all to himself, and Haley and DeSantis are in this fight for second place, but uh, you know they're not able to affect the uh, probable uh, frontrunner. And as we just heard from Steve, and we've been talking about uh, every day on this show, Nikki Haley is playing, I mean, not that Ron DeSantis isn't playing in New Hampshire, but Nikki Haley sees a much better path for herself in New Hampshire than she does in Iowa, which means that Iowa is even more important for Ron DeSantis. I don't want to say Iowa or bust, but it's pretty close for DeSantis. I want you to listen to what one of his final arguments, closing arguments is uh, on, ad, on TV in an ad. They've corrupted our institutions, indoctrinated our kids, opened our border, weaponized government against us, and destroyed the American dream. Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who's defeated them. I mean, that could very well be a Donald Trump ad. The messages are identical. Well, and it's not an accident, right? I mean, DeSantis's calculation throughout has been 
that there's a lot that Republican voters like about Donald Trump, but there might be a fraction of them who like those things but don't want to be led by him personally anymore. That's been his entire strategy, and he has maintained, you know, for all the other problems of his campaign, a fair amount of discipline in pursuing that strategy. The problem is, so far, the evidence that it's working is pretty thin. This is not the place that DeSantis wanted to be at this stage of the campaign. Absolutely right. My colleagues in the Washington Post had a really fascinating story today about the rise of Donald Trump over the past year um, and how he's the clear front runner. And one of the most fascinating things that was in that story is all the internal polling that has been done with other candidates and outside groups and focus groups about how nothing sticks against Donald Trump, that it was impossible to move uh, any Trump supporters away from him to the point that Club for Growth, who's been anti-Trump, is not going to uh, challenge him uh, because they have been unable to find an argument to do so. And so what DeSantis and Haley are doing in this race for second place is they're also splitting the non-Trump voters, which is going to make it very difficult for either one of them to ever topple the front runner. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it is so true that you are seeing, I mean, not a total consolidation, but even here in Washington, Politico has a, a story out today about uh, the U.S. Congress and Republicans in Congress t saying its leader has no relationship with the former president, but Senate Republicans are peeling off to endorse him on the eve of the Iowa caucuses. A handful have, uh, sure, and the ones who haven't are saying that they're likely to support him or they will support him if he's the nominee and put Mitch McConnell in that category. We've known for a long time that, uh, that Leader McConnell would have preferred virtually any other Republican but Trump. But on the verge of uh, if he becomes the nominee, of course they're going to get behind him. Um, one thing that we'll also be talking about a lot for the rest of the year is the fight for control of the Senate. And Republicans can smell a majority in the Senate. It is so close. So that's why they're not getting uh, crossways with Donald Trump. But their chances of getting the Senate are probably a little bit lower with Trump as the nominee. You know, one of the interesting things going on here is that Trump in the nomination contest gets the benefit both of being the establishment candidate and of being the populist insurgent. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to overcome him. Yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty tough to do. But you're right. I never thought of it that way. Um, Another thing that really uh, caught our attention is something that is brewing inside Donald Trump's orbit. And that is, uh, I believe this was after some reporting, including by our Kristen Holmes, about Trump just kind of waxing about who his VP pick would be, assuming that he is the nominee, and mentioning Nikki Haley's name. And the pushback from people extremely close to him, including Donald Trump Jr., and Steve Bannon going after Nikki Haley. Well, there's Donald Trump Jr., his tweet, uh, December 23rd. Let me be clear, we are not letting the swamp keep the status quo, and this Hail Mary isn't happening. Uh, then he said that he was gonna talk live about it. Listen to what Steve Bannon said on a podcast about this. One of the fights we're gonna have, a big fight will take place in the spring, will be they're gonna try to force Nikki on the ticket, to say Trump needs a woman, Nikki on the ticket, she balances things. If Nikki Haley is in this administration in any capacity, it will fail. Now, I just want to be clear. She says, I'm not playing for second. She is very much still a candidate for president. It doesn't mean that these other conversations are not happening. What do you make of this pushback? 
Look, I think they're trying to diminish her, uh, first and foremost, as a serious presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. So it's one way of doing that. The pushback is pretty extraordinary because she was one of the few who navigated the very uh, complicated obstacle, of course, of leaving the Trump administration. Really, um, she probably emerged stronger than she arrived, which most of his nominees that did not. Some were indicted. Others were, um, you know, sort of down on their luck, et cetera. So I think that... Uh, it's a little surprising, but really this is pushback against people who are supporting Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. the Wall Street donors, the, the Coke network, et cetera. So the people who she's now being led by and associated with, that's who Steve Bannon is talking about, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. She does not represent the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, and that would go against a little bit what Trump says that he is for, but, or says what his, what he is, but, um, Nikki Haley has effectively run as kind of a more old school, traditional Republican candidate in many instances. And so I don't know if Steve Bannon has his pulse on the uh, on the party as much as far as to say that it, it yeah. would be unsuccessful if she was the nominee, because I think that he she would actually maybe bring in a lot of independent no, it's, voters. It's personal. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing that makes Haley possible as a Veep nominee is that she has basically refrained from sharply attacking Trump during this contest, while at the same time carving out an independent group of voters who like her but don't always like Trump. The problem is, for these people who want to veto her, is if it gets to a point where it looks as though Trump, Trump has the nomination and putting Haley on the ticket makes him a stronger candidate in a general election. What is Steve Bannon going to do about yeah. it? Is Bannon going to say, I'm not going to support Trump at that point? No. This feels like a bluff. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting that this is the time that they're deciding to do this. Everybody stand by. Before we go to break, we want to make sure that you know that before our debate next week that we talked about at the top of the show, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are going to take questions directly from Iowa voters in back-to-back -back town halls. The CNN Republican presidential town halls will be moderated by Caitlin Collins and Aaron Burnett, and they will be this Thursday starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. Now, it is a very busy day for Donald Trump's legal team. The former president is expected to file appeals to keep his name on the Republican primary ballots in Colorado and Maine. We'll talk about that after a quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently 
ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I certify the names onto the ballot uh, for the presidential primary this Friday. Uh, and so we, we do hope that the court understands that presidential primaries are rapidly uh, approaching and gives us a definitive answer. CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed and former federal prosecutor Shan Wu join me now. Nice to see you both. Happy New Year. Likewise. Uh, the question is, let's start with, well, Colorado, and then, of course, it has to do with, with others as well. You just heard the Secretary of State in Colorado saying, like, Time's a ticking, guys. Uh, we need to print these ballots by Friday. First question is, based on your reporting, when do you expect the Trump team to actually file the appeal on this? Emphasis on expect. We expect them to appeal today, both in Colorado uh, and Maine. And we expect that Colorado appeal will go to the Supreme Court. But the Republican Party of Colorado has already appealed the decision to remove Trump. So that decision is now on hold because of that prior appeal. But we still expect the former president will appeal in Colorado and then in Maine, he will appeal to the Maine court system because the first stop for questions of ballot eligibility in that state as the secretary of state, if you don't like the decision, then you go to the court system. And so for those maybe just dialing into this question, we should maybe just give a quick background uh, check on this and that is that well, you, we can put up a map of, of some of the states where there have been either uh, appeals that have been struck down, uh, where Trump remains on the ballot, uh, or in Oregon, it's pending, and then Colorado and Maine, which Paula was just talking about, it, it is TBD. And what the uh, people who are saying he should not be on the ballot are saying is that because of the 14th Amendment, uh, which says that if a person engaged in an insurrection not convicted, but engaged in an insurrection, that they are not qualified to hold elected office. Right. And it's very much important to remind everyone that we're talking about disqualification. And that's important because disqualification isn't a punishment. It's not a sanction. And that really defeats a lot of the questions about, for example, you must have a conviction first. It's not a criminal case, and it's not a punishment for having done something wrong. It just goes to qualifications like age, place of birth. And that's an important point. The other issue is that there are actually many other potential cases pending. There's something like 14 others going on in other states. And so the Supreme Court has a real challenge here. I mean, there's a great temptation and push for them to do something that just universally answers the question. But realistically, there's only a couple of very narrow constitutional questions for them to consider. And the states have such different laws. Like, for example, in Maine, Secretary of State gets the first cut. Mm -hmm. Colorado went through the court system. The court, the Supreme Court, needs to really respect the different processes in the state court systems. There's nothing wrong, in my view, of there being a lot of different decisions in different states as long as the major constitutional questions get answered. Well, so yes, respecting the states is certainly a key part of what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, certainly based on what uh, the justices who are currently sitting uh, on the Supreme Court argue in many cases, but because this is unprecedented when it comes to a, a former president, um, the question is whether they will choose to give a blanket uh, decision on this 
assume that they even take the cases, which I assume that they will. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet that they will take the case because this is what they're designed to do. Clarify constitutional questions and settle disputes among the states. And the Colorado GOP laid this out pretty well in their brief. The first question is whether the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to presidents. We've seen even within the state of Colorado, the courts were split on this because that office is not explicitly mentioned. The next question is, okay, if the 14th Amendment applies to presidents, uh, if there is a question about someone being you know, disqualified from the ballot, is it up to the states or is there a role for Congress? That's the second question going before the Supreme Court. That's where they might have some room to actually take some power away from the states. Which way they'll go? We'll see. The other question that we're looking for in the short term with regard to Donald Trump and his legal situation is whether or not he um, will be successful in claiming immunity, that he cannot be prosecuted for crimes because he uh, was president. There was a court filing over the weekend. The special counsel, Jack Smith, said rather than vindicating our constitutional framework, the defendant's sweeping immunity claim threatens to license presidents to commit crimes to remain in office. And I want you to listen to what Jamie Raskin, Congressman from Maryland, also a constitutional expert and uh, a top Democrat on the January 6th investigation told me about this claim. It's hard to think of a more un-American or anti-constitutional argument than the idea that the president can commit crimes while in office with impunity, murder, rape, insurrection, conspiracy to sabotage the election, overthrow the government. I mean, it's just completely antithetical to the idea of having the rule of law and a constitutional democracy. It's also explicitly rejected by the text of the Constitution. What do you make of that, Chan? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's the same reason why prosecutors are very loath to give broad immunity grants to people, because it may create an incentive for people to commit crimes. Uh, legally, I think it's very weak footing to argue there's going to be an absolute immunity for presidents. I don't think that that's going to fly uh, with the Supreme Court. His real immunity is the delay in the case. Yeah, <laughs> that this that's is causing. the real strategy. <laughs> right. Yeah, his former lawyer, yeah. Tom Parlatore, told me this weekend, look, he's not going to win on the merits of immunity, but the strategy here is delay, delay, and he put it at 50-50 that this case will go before the election. Fascinating. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Up next, inside President Biden's 2024 re-election plan to beat Donald Trump, assuming he is the GOP nominee. We have brand new reporting, and we'll bring it to you next. Now, new CNN reporting on the Biden re-election strategy and how the campaign plans to make the race less about the current president and more about the former one. A big question, how quickly to ratchet up attacks on Trump's talk of being a dictator and how he'd wield power if he wins back the White House. CNN's Isaac Dover is the man behind this great new reporting, and he joins our panel now. Nice to see you. See you. I'm going to just read one of the really fascinating uh, sort of nuggets in this. And you write, the campaign so far, these aides believe, referring to Biden aides, has essentially been Biden running against himself and losing with his approval ratings under 40 percent, anxiety about his age and the Democratic divide over his handling of the war, uh, the Hamas, Israel-Hamas war. But they see the next few weeks in the Republican primary campaigns as an opportunity to persuade influencers and media into thinking about the race on their terms. Yeah, look, this is a, a, a 
beginning of the year in a lot of ways, but it's also the beginning of the time when many people are going to start tuning into politics more than those of us around this table and most of the people watching happen. Uh, and what they see is that th in these couple of weeks, Trump will be trying to shore up his uh, claim on the nomination. Uh, it seems like he is continuing to lead the polls, but uh, he needs to make sure he actually wins those primaries. In that process, they believe that they can, uh, the Biden campaign believes that they can make people focus on what it, Trump has actually been saying. And that this isn't just entertaining and mm -hmm. this isn't just, oh, can you believe Donald Trump's running again? And they can also make people focus on what the other candidates have been saying to try to compete with Donald Trump and to start pressing the case. This is a really extreme vision of the presidency that would be there under Trump. It would be, he's talked about being a dictator, if only for one day. Mm -hmm. All of those sorts of things uh, that so far have been part of the political scuttlebutt, but not really on the top of people's minds. Let me just read you another quote from Isaac's piece, and I'm going to put this in context as soon as I read it. As some of the younger aides on Biden's reelection campaign have been grimly joking, it's about when to go full Hitler. Now, what they mean by that is the idea that Donald Trump has been using terminology that Adolf Hitler used and that that is something that the Biden campaign is going to play up. And in fact, we have some quotes uh, here about, <coughs> excuse me, about things like, we will root out my political opponents that live like vermin. That was Trump. And Hitler said, pests and vermin, immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. Hitler, contamination of the blood and inferior race will lead to the fall of Germany. Right. And uh, Trump's defense here is that um, he doesn't he's not consciously quoting Hitler. He has just spontaneously recreated the rhetoric <coughs> on his own, um, which may not be the most reassuring defense. Uh, I think that the, uh, the you know, look, what the Biden campaign is realizing is that this has to be, you know, a choice election, not a referendum election. If it's a referendum on Biden, Biden's going to lose. Um, but that's also the same realization that George W. Bush had in 2004, that Barack Obama had in 2012. Every successful incumbent re-election has been based on framing this as a choice. You know, as Biden says, it's, it's not me against the almighty, it's me against yeah. the alternative. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that, it, like you said, it's a new political year, it's a big year now, but that the Biden campaign and the president haven't been doing this already. Um, they have all often said, Biden campaign people and people, Democrats, that once Trump becomes more of a focus, then voters will remember what it was like back then when he was in power. Um, but Biden has been well, has not said that much that often about Trump. Yes, he hits him every now and again, but he has not been pounding that message. And it's interesting that it's taken them so long to come to it. Well, that's part of the fear that they have is that if they had gone fully into this by the fall of last year, uh, that by it, it risks getting to be background noise and people getting dulled to it. And part of what they say about this is that as we get into the spring, you're going to hear more and more of it. By the summer, this will be really bringing back things from Trump's record in his time as president to say, 
look what he did when he was president. And also, look what he said he was going to do that he didn't do. Uh, and, and look at that record. And if they had started doing it in, let's say, September or October, when a lot of the political chattering class was talking about why aren't they doing it more, that it, it just would have become part of what was in the ether. Uh, and look, we'll see if they're proved right on this. But that's their theory of this. Yeah, we'll see if it works. That's the question. I mean, of course, it's probably the right theory. But this reminds me of when President Biden uh, said, I need to get out in the country more and sell my plans more. You know, and presidents are always hemmed in and they're very, you know, it's difficult for them to get out of their bubble as much. So it's definitely the strategy. It's probably the only winning strategy, as, as Ramesh was, was just saying. There, it's what Bush did. It's what Obama did. Obviously, it's what Reagan did. But uh, I still think that it overlooks the challenges of Biden um, really consolidating his own base and his own party. But one thing that when I have conversations with Biden advisors, they say they're looking forward to the primary process being over. So people actually see that Biden is the nominee as well. Because yeah. there's still this conversation out yeah. there that, oh, Biden, he's not really going to be running. It might be Vice President Harris or someone else. So once it gets to the realization that, no, he's running, then people also may get behind him. I, I want to talk about one other part, and you guys just kind of touched on this, of your great reporting. And that is the question of how much to lean into uh, not only what the president has done in his first term, but the question of how much he has to talk about what he would do in a second term, which generally speaking is what incumbents like to do. This is why you should hire me again for four right. more years. Uh, look, and part of what makes this different from the other incumbent reelections is that we've got a former president with a record. It's not just a challenger saying, here's what I would do. So that's the challenge that Biden has to do on that part. But he does have to talk about it, what he wants to do, not just say, finish the job or here's what I did. And when I talk to a lot of Democrats in Congress elsewhere about it, they say, I don't really know. What is it? Well, we've got a lot to talk about what we've done already. The Biden team uh, in Wilmington in the campaign office is doing a lot of the work that we've been talking about. But in the White House, one of the things that they're really focused on is the State of the Union. What we're going to have over the course of the next couple of weeks is this ramp up to always the biggest nationally televised address that the president has, big audience. And he is going to talk about things that he wants to do on health care, on taxing millionaires and billionaires more, on cutting costs and fighting inflation, those sorts of things. And he's also going to talk about this thing that Biden calls the unity agenda that he's talked about in the last two State of the Union addresses, uh, tackling the fentanyl crisis, uh, doing things to help veterans, uh, looking for a cure for cancer, and try to say to Republicans in Congress, but also really to the country, why aren't these people working with me mm -hmm. to solve these problems? That's what I want to do. Why can't we do more of it? That's what I want to do if I have four more years. Yeah, see if there's a government shutdown in the middle of all that's this. That's right. Oh, well, that's true. But stand, <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, State of the Union addresses in a, an election year for an incumbent president who's running for re-election. It's always kind of the opening. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's what my platform is, not just for the year, but for the next four years if you reelect me. Yeah, one of the problems of the Biden campaign, which you kind of mentioned in your story, is that the message is not translated to voters very well. You talked about Bidenomics and how there are some people are trying to do away with that term. It's funny talking to members of Congress before the break about Bidenomics and they say, oh, we talk about it all the time in our districts. We try to talk, you know, tell people about it, what it means is like, but do you use the word? And they're like, no, yeah, people don't know what that means. And so they are having this messaging gap that they're trying to remind people about prescription drug prices, mm -hmm. about infrastructure where shovels are just now getting into the ground. So they have a pretty big task ahead.
It's really fascinating. I encourage everybody to check out Isaac's piece on CNN.com. Thanks for coming on. Coming up, a defection in the Granite State, why a former member of Chris Christie's steering committee says he's now on Team Haley. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now to New Hampshire, where a top Chris Christie ally and former member of his steering committee is defecting to Nikki Haley's campaign three weeks before voters go to the polls. I was a Christie supporter up until recently. I love Chris Christie. He did a great job in his campaign, but Nikki Haley is the way to beat Trump. And the independent voter is, is going to make this decision, and I think the American people are going to be quite surprised to see Donald Trump did not win the New Hampshire primary. CNN's Eva McKend is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Eva, you've been spending a lot of time up there in the Granite State recently. What are you hearing from voters about this question, this dynamic? Well, Dana, Chris Christie really resisting those calls, and that's because he has a base of support here. You can hear it on the ground from his supporters. And you hear Governor Sununu, for instance, also calling for Christie to step aside. This is really all an indication that voters are trying to consolidate around an anti-Trump alternative. You might hear in some circles that former President Donald Trump is going to walk away with this nomination. Well, not if the voters in New Hampshire have something to say about it. Many of them who are looking for someone else, including this woman uh, that we met just recently in Lebanon. Take a listen. Let's just say I've lived in the state for 40 years. I attend most all of the primary opportunities we have. I think she's the strongest candidate I've ever seen. She's sane, she's rational, she's a problem solver, and she's absolutely direct and she's earnest. There's no drama. So you heard there from that Nikki Haley supporter and uh, from her comments, it seems like the attacks that Governor DeSantis has waged, Chris Christie has raised, waged Vivek Ramaswamy, that Haley is too evasive when she answers questions, that she's sort of a moving target on policy positions. That isn't landing in every corner of the state because, as you can see, uh, she still has a lot of support here. Listen, she's going to be campaigning tonight in nearby Rye, New Hampshire, and she'll have a slew of stops tomorrow in the state as well. And she'll be joined on all of those stops by Governor Sununu, Dana. Eva, thank you so much for that reporting. And if Donald Trump wins Iowa, as the polls suggest is likely as of uh, this moment, it is going to be the Granite State and voters there who could be the last thing standing in the way of Donald Trump winning the nomination. I want to go back to New Hampshire. Josh Rogers is a senior political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio and joins me now. Josh, thank you so much for being here. I, I want to start with what your governor, Chris Sununu, told me on Sunday, uh, who, of course, I should say Chris Sununu is a uh, Haley backer. He endorsed her a few weeks ago. Uh, what he said about Chris Christie. 
Chris Christie's a friend, but his race is at an absolute dead end. He's going to say anything he can. This is a two-person race, right? It's between Trump and Nikki Haley. Everybody understands that. He knows his voters who want to see Trump defeated are all coming over to Nikki Haley. Uh, in fact, the only person that wants Chris Christie to stay in the race is Donald Trump. Strongly suggesting Christie needs to, uh, to get out of the race. What are you hearing from your sources and more importantly from voters in New Hampshire? Well, when you attend a Chris Christie event, there are people here who like his anti-Trump message. But to Governor Sununu's point, the math may not be there for Nikki Haley if all non-Trump um, candidates uh, and non-Haley candidates get out or get out of the race. And so, you know, there's an effort to consolidate these voters. You know, independent voters do make up the the bulk of the electorate here. Mm -hmm. They are not a monolith. And you know, while Christie has been you know, obviously very forthright and sort of being sort of fully frontally against Donald Trump. Um, that's not exactly what you hear from Nikki Haley. And they're trying to cobble together a coalition. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, Christie supporters would tell you he's standing on principle and is the only one who's being sufficiently forthright in in uh, condemning Donald Trump as the potential leader of the Republican Party. And um, so we'll see. I mean, but, you know, for Nikki Haley to make this competitive in New Hampshire, according to all the polling, you know, the other candidates are going to have to get out and their support is going to have to flow to Haley. And it's an yeah. open question whether all of that support would. Uh, as you said, Chris Christie is, despite what we saw today, that one defection from his campaign to Nikki Haley in response to Chris Sununu and in every other forum, he's saying, I'm not going anywhere. In fact, he is spending... Uh, money in New Hampshire, a, a fair amount. And he released a new ad that, over the weekend, which we debuted on CNN. Let's play a little bit of it. The country I choose, one with love in our hearts for every American. Our differences are a strength, not a weakness, where the president cares more about you than he does about himself. Donald Trump, he will sell the soul of this country. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes, but I will always tell you the truth. New Hampshire, it's up to you. What do you think? Well, I mean, for, for Chris Christie uh, and Nikki Haley, that may be the case. Um, but you attend a Christie event and the crowds aren't getting bigger. And, you know, Chris Christie predicated his 2016 campaign here on um, doing well in New Hampshire. And, you know, he came in, I think he came in fifth or sixth place. And so, you know, voters here are familiar with him. Um, a certain slug of them like him. But um, he doesn't seem to be picking up steam, but he may be attracting, uh, you know, there's a strong slug of the, of the electorate here that does not mm -hmm. Republican voters who don't want Donald Trump in yeah. there. And he's being most right in making that case. Yeah, he so he's appealing to them. Yeah, he definitely is. And he's uh, visibly sort of palpably frustrated that the other non-Trump candidates are not more aggressively going after Trump because he is so far ahead in, in all of the polls. Do you think how much is that playing into what voters are thinking about and looking for, meaning issues of personality and character? Or are there issues that really stand out when you talk to voters up there that they are looking for that will determine their vote? Well, a lot of voters are talking about they're, they're concerned about affordability of mm -hmm. things. Uh, housing is a big issue here. Um, you hear plenty of voters at a Haley event, for example, uh, who will tell you that they like uh, her foreign policy views. There are a lot of people who uh, Republican voters here who have sort of more traditional notions of, of U.S. engagement abroad than some in the 
contemporary Republican Party do. Um, you know, there, there, it's it's worth remembering that a lot of the Republican electorate primary voters here, it's an open primary. Um, they are also supportive of abortion rights. And some will say that while Nikki Haley will say she's unapologetically pro-life, they like her tone, uh, that she's not going to demonize the issue. Um, but a lot of the discussion comes down to a referendum on Trump. And a lot of voters I talk to will say, you know, I'm looking for an alternative to Trump or will bemoan the fact that it's looking if as if the next four years are going to be four more years of, of Joe Biden or four more years of Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. why can't we have something different? But, you know, mobilizing voters, um, the sort of coalition that Nikki Haley or really any non-Trump candidate appears to need, a lot of these voters are not the, you know, engaged New Hampshire voter that, you know, people in New Hampshire and, you know, in D.C. like to tell you that, 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 that decide the primary here. A lot of these people are people who are just getting up to speed, who, mm. you know, can't tell you particulars of a stump speech and haven't been to many campaign events. And that's one challenge for Haley's campaign is, you know, how do you mobilize those people? Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time, but 20, what, 21 days uh, in New Hampshire politics time is actually quite a it's bit. It's going to be a so, long time. It, it is but, a long time. But, you know, yeah, but but it's worth remembering that while Governor Sununu's out there, and you know he, you know he's hoping to replicate the kind of coalition that 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 delivers him big right. wins in New Hampshire. But that may not be what's going to turn out on primary day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on, Josh. Thanks for your insights. You're welcome. And up next, Congress is back this week with just days to go to stop a government shutdown. But some Republicans are focused on something else impeaching President Biden. Congress is facing a long to-do list after punting a lot to this new year. Luckily, CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill and back covering all of it. Manu, what do we expect? Uh, It's going to be a mess, Dana, in large part because Congress essentially punted all these major issues, consequential issues, into the new year instead of these huge deadlines that they have to avoid potential catastrophe, including a government shutdown by January 19th. Even though the House and the Senate are still out of session, they don't return until next week, and there is nowhere near an agreement on keeping the government open, even for a short period of time because of a disagreement or funding levels. And perhaps even more significantly, what to do about aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, which is now tied up in negotiations over how to secure the southern border with Mexico. Over the last several weeks, a bipartisan group of senators have been meeting virtually. They plan to meet in person as soon as today, Dana. That could potentially unlock aid to Ukraine and Israel, but finding a deal on that to get passage of those major issues remains a huge question as they confront these major issues when they return next week. Yeah. And and that's not even including the notion of uh, an impeachment process for President Biden, which I know you are all over and could come extremely, extremely quickly. Manu, thank you so much. Nice to see you. you. Buckle in, huh? That's right. (laughs) I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) Always. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.